Dennis Wolfgang. Thank you all for coming. Thank you so much to the Syrian American Forum for hosting me and sponsoring me here today. I love talking about Syria, and so really I'm honored uh, to have this time with you. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'll just go right into it. If you don't mind, I would prefer to take questions at the end. I'll try to leave a half hour at the end. Uh, but if there's something really urgent, feel free to raise your hand, and we'll try to address that. I do want to say that I am here um, on my own. I'm not here representing the Syrian, Syrian American Forum, Boston College, anything else. You know, I'm just here giving you my own opinion, what I've learned and what I've observed over the past five years of researching uh, the Syrian war and uh, Syria as a country. I call these presentations an American housewife in Syria for a reason. It's because I am an American. I consider myself a patriotic American. Um, I believe it is the duty of every honest American to hold our government accountable for its words and actions. And I think we're a critical part of the checks and balances of our constitutional republic. I am a housewife. Uh, I am not paid by anyone for anything. I spend a lot of time washing dishes and cleaning the house and picking vegetables in the garden and that kind of thing. I do not represent any movement, organization, corporation, denomination, other nation. Uh, Vladimir Putin does not pay me. <laughs> uh, nobody pays me. My husband and I, uh, we, he's a handyman. He fixes houses. He pays for most of my trips to Syria, although we have received some help from friends and family, which we really appreciate. Um, I started researching Syria in uh, 2012, in November of 2012, as a matter of fact. That's a map of where I've been. I'll show it to you in a minute. Uh, in 2012, at the end of that year, the Arab Spring, as it was called, was in full swing. Um, I had been kind of watching it on the evening news, had seen Colonel Gaddafi get tortured and killed. And at that time, I thought it just seemed kind of fishy. I didn't really know anything about the Middle East much, but I knew, knew enough about Saudi Arabia that I felt that if a freedom and democracy movement had skipped it by, that maybe there was something fishy going on. And so I decided to just dig in my heels a little bit and, as an American, try to learn a little bit about the Middle East and what was happening there. At that time, on the news, we were told President Bashar al-Assad of Syria would be next. And at any moment, he would get pulled out of whatever bunker he was hunkering down in, and he would be inviscerated by the peaceful protesters, and a new dawn of freedom and democracy would come to Syria. And I have to confess, up until that moment, I believed that narrative, because I was ignorant. And so I noticed that he had, I had started researching, and I noticed that he had given an interview on RT in the end of September of 2012. And I decided to watch it, just out of curiosity, to see what this brutal tyrant, how he could justify the violence towards his people. And it literally was not two or three minutes into that interview 
when I felt in my gut that he was telling the truth. And it shocked me. And I became kind of obsessed immediately with finding out if my gut was correct or if he was, uh, or if what we were hearing on the news was the accurate story. And he said something in that interview, though, that really messed up my life, I think, forever. He said, uh, he said, basically, anybody can be president, but I'm Syrian. I was born in Syria, and I'll die in Syria. And I remember thinking, what's so special about Syria? I knew nothing of the country. And so while I decided to research the war, I decided to research the country as well. And the more I found out about Syria itself, the more fascinating in the country itself I became. So since that time, I put in five years, well over 6,000 hours of research. I have conducted hundreds of interviews uh, on the phone and via Skype, et cetera, with Syrians, both in Syria and outside of Syria. I've put in a lot of time researching you know, government documents, media reports from all over the world, uh, listened to every speech that President Assad has done and the opposition has done. I've, you know, I've really tried my best to be as well-rounded a researcher as I could be. But after four years of that, I decided it was necessary for me to go and see if what I thought was going on matched reality on the ground. What we're going to do today is kind of go through, and I'm just going to be kind of playing Mythbuster. Because to be honest with you, um, as an American watching some of American media, all I can tell you is, in my opinion, everything you've so-called learned about Syria is virtually 180 degrees from reality there. Um, one of the most recent myths that we've been told about the country is that it's gone, it's destroyed. I'm here to stand before you and tell you that it is far from destroyed. There are, there are areas, huge swaths of terrible destruction. This is true. Um, but for example, I don't know if you remember in December, the news media was trying to convince you that Aleppo was falling. And these horrible massacres were going to take place if the Syrian army and the Russians were allowed to, you know, take over all of the city. Well, I was there in April and I was there in October, and all I can tell you is the people are really, really happy that Aleppo fell. And there is so much life returning to that city. There is about 25, I would say, or 30% of it that's heavily damaged. Um, but a lot of it looks as you see here. It's very functioning. There are businesses opening up, factories opening up all the time. I just saw a post today. Um, a group of Christians has reopened several churches there. 
Um, the citadel, of course, the symbol of Aleppo is reopened. We actually did get to go inside and take pictures from the, the top of the top tower there. Uh, we attended the big football match between Australia and the Syrian national team when they were playing. And it was so great because all the people in the, in the auditorium there were just screaming and cheering and laughing and dancing and singing. Um, it was a wonderful day even though they lost the, the game. Um, walking around, you just see a lot of young people and um, you know, just a lot of activity on the street. And I loved seeing the old Mustang out in front of the cafe we were staying at, or that we went to. For example, Holmes um, was liberated from uh, terrorist militant groups about three years ago. And I've been there four times now. And on, in the upper left-hand side is the old souk. And even just last trip in April, the souk was still heavily damaged. And I was just thrilled to see how much rebuilding had occurred just in the last six months. That's in the old city of Holmes and a place that had really suffered terrible damage during the war. And, and now um, uh, that's uh, an area where there are a lot of churches and Christian groups. The churches are being rebuilt. I went to the Julia Palace restaurant that three years ago was a burnt out hulk. It's one of those beautiful old Syrian style homes that have been converted to a fine restaurant. And now they've restored it in three years, and it's just spectacular. Um, in, in downtown Holmes, um, we were just talking late at night into 2 o'clock in the morning. There's a lot of life on the streets. And at my hotel, uh, they brought in a few musicians, and they were playing one night. And uh, it's just, I, I have to say, Homs is my favorite city, and I love it there because there's a lot of life and wild and crazy people there. Uh, Dier Azor, um, just if you don't aren't familiar with this story, Dier Azor. In Syria, you have cities, and then uh, that's also the main city is the name of the government or the area around it. So this is Diyarizor city. And Diyarizor government is where ISIS was really concentrated in Syria, really for several years now. The city of Diyarizor had been under siege from ISIS for three full years. There was a small little part of it that was being held by the Syrian government. During those three years, the people that were in that little area um, didn't have fresh fruits or vegetables. There was very little food. Um, uh, for example, there had been hundreds of doctors in the city, and I think it went down to um, 19 in the whole province that were still there. Um, the city itself had been uh, 350,000 population, and when I was there, it was down to 60,000. So it has a kind of a ghost town feeling. But finally, a few months ago, the Syrian army and their allies broke that siege. 
and the armies that were the army that was holding the siege area and the army came in broke through the ISIS line they met up and since then it's been one victory after another in Diyarbakir province uh, when I was there the city there was still 40% of the city held by ISIS and this was middle of October third week in October um, and still, after all that, after three years of siege, still after there being 40% of the city being held by ISIS, ISIS attacks happening on a routine basis. The road you have to travel to get there, they had a terrible attack three days before we left, we got there, and there was one attack just hours after we passed by on the road. Um, but still, they're receiving now I mean, this is nothing. The whole, all the streets are just lined with kiosk after kiosk of, of overflowing with apples and pomegranates and grapes and potatoes and all these fresh fruits and vegetables. New businesses are reopening. And we went around the city a lot and we're just talking with people. I was there with a couple of different activists. We all just kind of hit there at the same time. And everybody we met was just like, we were dead for three years, and now we're alive again. And they were happy to be alive. So Dier Azor, even after three years of ISIS siege, is alive. And Palmyra, um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with Palmyra, this is the UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's, it's in the desert uh, on the way to Deir Ezzor. And it had been taken over by ISIS, and then it was uh, captured, recaptured by the Russians and the Syrians. Then it was lost again to ISIS. And during that time, they set about, they literally just blew up many of the famous um, uh, sites within Palmyra, which was really sad. Uh, you can see like they blew up some of the facade of the theater there. But for the most part, uh, Palmyra is still spectacular. It's a huge site. It's stunning. It's a, a ghost town, unfortunately. It used to receive millions of visitors every year. Now, since the war, there's just a handful of people like me and the, the other writers who were there coming. Uh, the Russians are there. Hezbollah is there. And the Syrian army there guarding it. Uh, in the bottom right is Dr. Khalid al-Assad, and he um, is known as the martyr of Palmyra. He was the famous archaeologist who devoted his life to that site. He knew it intimately, inside and out. Um, he wrote many books on it, and as ISIS was coming into Palmyra, he stayed behind to hide a lot of the precious artifacts and treasures so that they would not be found by the terrorists. They captured him. They tortured him for over a month trying to find the location of the treasures. He did not reveal that. Um, eventually, they uh, beheaded him, and they hung his body in the public square on the, ro on the main road. And again and again, I think this is what really strikes people when they go to Syria, is that there is a profound 
stark contrast between civilization and barbarism. Um, we'll go into that more in a minute. So that was the myth of Syria is dead. Syria is not dead. It's a highly functioning place. You know, the government is pretty well stretched, but it's amazing how functional it is. The next myth I want to look at just very briefly here is this concept of peaceful protest. This is one of the main narratives that you've seen in Western media, that the Syrian war began in March 2011 when President Assad and the Syrian army brutally put down peaceful protests. I'll go more into the background later in the, in the program, but the reality is a lot of those protests were not so very peaceful. Let me just say that I have never run into anyone in Syria who does not want reforms in the government, including, I haven't met him, but including the president and a lot of the people who work for him. They're very open that they're frustrated with corruption that's gotten worse over the war. Um, some of the bureaucracy, this and that. And everybody wants a more efficient government. No kidding. They appreciated uh, the freedoms that had come in, uh, like the internet coming in. Um, the country had gone from one political party to over 20 in the last, in the 10 years before the war. So some things were, were happening that were positive. Uh, I was just on the phone this morning with a friend in Holmes. And I said, you know, please put your mind back to the very, very, very start. What were those protests like? And he said, from the beginning, there was violence. From the beginning, there were snipers. And what most people here don't know, because you've never been told, is the Syrian security forces were not allowed to carry armed weapons for almost a year. They went into those demonstrations with batons. So the people dying were not dying from a bunch of soldiers going crazy into the crowd with rifles. In fact, we know that there were Saudi Mujahideen there from well before March 2011 from a video fatwa that was done from a Saudi cleric there. And he basically was saying the Saudi fighters had been there since uh, at least three to four months before the violence began in March 2011. One of the best, um, for example, uh, I think this was in Homs, and the, the protesters are shouting Islamic, our, Islamic, our revolution is Islamic. They were shouting things like, Osama bin Laden is our grandfather, we're his grandsons. And the famous one was Alois to the grave and Christians to Beirut. Um, over here, it was a very disturbing video. Um, this was typical, I, the, this was, um, I think this is in Aleppo, I can't remember, but the uh, peaceful protesters had gone into the post office, had killed, had murdered the government workers there. They took their bodies up to the top of the roof and then just literally, they were filmed, just throwing those bodies off the roof. And that's, I was watching the video and just took a screenshot of it there. Uh, and this poor man, I forget what he, it was like, uh, 
I don't know if he worked in the post office or something. I think he was in, uh, uh, I can't remember what town he was in. But this was in like March 2011. And these so-called rebels took him, they tortured him because he worked for, he was a government worker. And they, um, they took him all the way down the street of the town and killed him when they reached the end of the street. Father Franz van der Lute was a Jesuit, um, a Dutch Jesuit priest. He lived in homes for decades. And he had decided to stay behind as these uh, I'm sorry, I just call them all terrorists. If you're in your mind, you can think they're rebels or militant groups or whatever. I call them terrorists, and I'm just going to stick with that language. The terrorists had taken over much of Holmes, and Father Franz had decided to stay behind in the old city to help the people that he uh, could. Um, and he wrote a letter in 2012, and he described how the protesters shot first how they were not peaceful, how the army was trying to keep the peace. Um, later on in 2014, when Holmes was liberated, the terrorists went into his little church courtyard and just shot him in his head and killed him. More about the moderate rebel myth. Uh, this is me in Old Damascus on my last trip. I, was, I always stay in the old city because they have these gorgeous old hotels. And, um, and it's just, they're, they're some of the most beautiful places you can imagine. And so that's where I stay when I'm in Syria. And I was taking a nap when, boom! I mean, literally my bed was shaking like this. And then another smaller, boom, went. And so I went out to investigate, and it uh, turns out the, this mortar had hit literally in the building next to me, I mean, from, from here to the back of the wall. <coughs> now, that doesn't look like much. You look at it and go, oh, it's a little hole in the floor. Well, those mortars are filled with shrapnel. And for example, uh, a friend of mine, her sister and her little baby were killed. In that attack, it was in a cafe in Old Damascus, a mortar came in, killed eight people that day. They can slice you in half, the shrapnel and those things. Now keep it, now there is a terrorist group that lives within two kilometers of where I stay in Old Damascus. They're in one of the Damascus suburbs called Jobar. It's part of a bigger area called Ghouta, which you're hearing in the news now. Uh, terrorists took over Jobar. They've had it ever since. Jobar, for the most part, is flattened. The terrorists live in tunnels that they've dug, sometimes tens of miles underground. The tunnels are big enough you can drive. I can't. You can drive a tank through some of these tunnels. It's this spider network all over. So the terrorists of Jobar seem to have one purpose in life, and that is to terrorize the population of Damascus. All they do is they, they're like rats. They come up out of their tunnels, out of their holes, they launch a few mortars, and then they go back and hide in their tunnels again. And meantime, just this morning, two more people dead in Damascus. This is a group that the United States of America calls moderate rebels. 
They receive aid and arms and supplies from Saudi Arabia. A lot of their money comes from Saudi Arabia. My last trip in April, the, the terrorists of Jobar had been paid $5 million by the Saudis to launch a major attack against civilians in Damascus and actually try to break through the Syrian army lines there. And the Syrian army held them off, but not before they had made life a living hell for the people of Damascus. This isn't once a month. This isn't something you hear about once a year. Virtually right now, it's every single freaking day. And it's been like that for almost seven years. And still they're called moderate rebels by people in our news media. It's unconscionable in my opinion. When's the last time you heard about terrorist attacks in Damascus on the news? Have you ever? This is a little bit about these moderate rebels, the so-called Free Syrian Army, that received advanced US weaponry, money, support, communications, intelligence support. Uh, the Free Syrian Army started as what was called the Farouk Brigade in Homs. Uh, this is an area, I'm, I'm literally up on a roof of one of those bombed out buildings to take that picture. But they would, the Farouk Brigade, listed as moderate rebels, would stop people at these checkpoints on the road. And if they came from a different sect, if they were Alawites or Christians, or if they were Sunnis that stood up against them, they were most likely going to get pulled out of their cars and executed on the spot. It was like hell on earth. There are children here, so I won't even tell, tell you some of the stories that I heard. And they're not just stories. The problem with our moderate rebels is they love videotaping themselves committing the most grotesque atrocities. And then they put them on their social media sites like they're bragging about it. One of those early Free Syrian Army guys, he was teaching his young son how to behead somebody. And then the young son did it on video. And this is a group that some of our senators and congressmen decided we're going to bring freedom and democracy to Syria. And they were going to use our weapons and our money and our training and our help to do it. Channel 4 in England produced a documentary about the Farouk Brigade. And at one point, they're looking at these high-resolution satellite imagery photos. And even the journalist was like, wow, that's surprising. Somehow they've obtained high-resolution satellite imagery. No, it's not surprising. They have help. I won't dwell on this. I'll just pass over him. That was the cannibal commander of the Omar Farouk Brigade, also part of the Free Syrian Army. Um, he cannibalized a dead Syrian soldier on video. Moderate, it's our moderates. Um, this is just recently, this is from April, and I was in Homs, and you'll have to forgive me, there are many Syrians here, Arabic speakers. When I try to pronounce Arabic, people laugh at me, so I'll do my best, but this is the Alwar neighborhood in a suburb of Homs. Say it again. That's it. 
Um, and this is the evacuation from Al War of the remaining terrorists that were there. Uh, Al War was a huge uh, suburb, and uh, before the war, I think it was like 250,000 people lived there. It was huge. I could be wrong on that number, but it had gone down over the course of the war to 50,000 people. Um, a lot of uh, terrorists lived there and their families, and then some kind of normal civilians were still managing to survive there. Um, but the Syrian government has what's called a reconciliation program. And in the reconciliation, if a terrorist is willing to stop fighting, uh, they can do one of two things, actually. They can take their weapons and move to another area, uh, area of the country, usually Idlib, or they can lay down their, their weapons and stop fighting, period. And usually, or they can go and fight for the Syrian army. And this has helped a lot of guys that were taken in at first. They were, there was so much, so many lies and so much propaganda, especially at the beginning of the war, a lot of people were um, misled into supporting this so-called freedom and democracy revolution. A lot of the people who joined the revolution joined for money. Um, a fighter, a soldier in the Syrian army makes about $40 a month. Some of them on the worst of the front lines can make as much as 100 The uh, terrorists were paid like uh, $400 a month from Saudi Arabia and other countries. So there was a huge financial incentive. You know, for a lot of these guys, they're from villages. Maybe they, um, you know, they're just hearing their news from Al Jazeera or Al Arabiya or something, and they got a totally misread on the situation. Um, there were also um, drugs readily available to anyone who would join the revolution. Sometimes they were free. A lot of captagon. I don't know if you know what captagon is, but if you take captagon for three days, you're impervious to pain, impervious to fatigue. You don't have to eat or drink, and you just want to go kill people, and that's a good time for you. And that's what captagon does. So they were given captagon. Um, they were given girls, women. Um, what, so, there's so many parts of this that are just incredibly evil to even think about. Um, so there were heavy incentives to join the so-called revolution. And some people really thought the revolution was, was a good thing, you know? Um, so anyway, a fighter who now wants to lay down their arms, either go join the Syrian army, or they can take their weapon and they can go move to Idlib, which is where the Syrians have been kind of concentrating all of these fighter groups that are willing to go. So they kind of clear out areas and they're just concentrating them on one. And we're waiting for the battle against Idlib to start hopefully soon. So anyway, here's the Syrian army and the Russians and their um, they're evacuating these rebels, or these terrorists are going to Idlib. And you can see that they, a lot of them, they'll stare you down, you know, because you're pretty close to them. And they've got loaded AK-47s and sawed-off shotguns and everything else. And they stare you down. So like this guy was staring at me for a while. And that's his Al-Qaeda armband there. And, you know, moderate rebels, right? 
Uh, these guys were famous for sniping the road outside of homes where um, they would just kind of sit up on a hillside and randomly snipe cars that were driving past. Uh, typically, I think they were do involved in a lot of car bombs, um, uh, probably mortar attacks, I'm not exactly sure, but they made life pretty miserable for people in homes for a while. But now they're gone. And Holmes is completely, basically cleared of all terrorists. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to be there now. More on the moderate rebel myth, because I'm really hitting this hard, because this is key, I think, to understanding the, um, the conflict. This is a, was an eye and ear hospital in Aleppo, in the eastern part of Aleppo. Um, during the time of, uh, you know, Aleppo had been split, like the terrorist groups were in charge of East Aleppo and the loyalist people, the government controlled area was the west of Aleppo. And this is where, East Aleppo is where you continually heard the media talking about, oh, they're getting bombed to death, you know, they're, they're starving, these poor people, they're under attack by the Russians and the Syrians. And yes, there were uh, a number of civilians there, unfortunately. But all of the groups in East Aleppo were under the thumb of Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, it's called in Syria. And they had taken this hospital and turned it into a Sharia court and jail. So when you hear on the news, oh, the Syrian army has bombed a hospital, oftentimes it was one of two scenarios. Either it was a hospital that had been converted to another use, and if attacks are coming out of a hospital, guess what? That's, that's open target to be attacked. Or often there would be some little kind of former shop somewhere on a street, and al-Nusra would just, you know, they'd put a few bandages in there and they'd call that a hospital. So it could be any one of a number of scenarios. But this narrative that all of a sudden, you know, the Syrian Air Force and the Russian Air Force are targeting hospitals is nonsense. Who do they think built the hospitals in the first place? Who do they think staffed the hospitals before the war? Who built the Al-Kindi Hospital up to be one of the premier cancer treatment facilities in the Middle East for free? It wasn't the terrorist rebels. It's the government of Syria. More about our moderate rebels. This is um, uh, uh, Al-Zanki in East Aleppo that the news media was so concerned about. Again, Channel 4 had done a huge documentary literally highlighting these guys as these amazing freedom fighters, freedom and democracy. And just as Channel 4 in the UK was preparing to air that documentary, promoting these guys with, with such a claim, literally it was a few days later, the terrorists themselves went into a hospital, pulled out a scrawny young kid, he still got an IV in his arm, took him, hauled him away in a pickup truck, and they, on video, they just sawed his head off. And they held it up and they're laughing. 
And they're saying, we're worse than ISIS. Al-Zanki got tow anti-tank missiles thanks to the United States of America. They received training. They received weapons. They received funding because they're moderate rebels. Um, this is um, Jack Murphy, and he is a former special, uh, special Forces guy in the US Army. And he was embedded with our guys, our military guys, who were in Turkey, and they were training these so-called moderate rebels. And he wrote um, a paper called U.S. Special Forces Sabotage White House Policy Gone Disastrously Wrong with Covert Ops in Syria. It's a long title. Basically, what he's saying is how we trained up terrorists in Syria. And he said, none of the guys in Turkey, none of our guys, believed in that mission because we all knew we were training the next generation of Al-Qaeda. And he goes on to describe how our so-called Free Syrian Army is nothing more than an umbrella organization through which to distribute weapons, supplies, money, etc., to groups that would not be to groups like al-Nusra, which is, is al-Qaeda in Syria. That there is virtually no distinguishing between the two. They all share the same ideology. And this is something that really baffles me. Why the Western media has not woken up? Why more journalists are not asking questions? because each and every Western journalist who went to Syria, who got kidnapped, who got tortured, who got shot, who got sold to ISIS, all of that was done by the so-called rebels, the terrorists they went to go interview, to hang out with, to tell their story, to promote their revolution. All, every single one of them Alex Thompson, this is early on, said the, the terrorists set him up to be shot by the Syrian army so it would look bad for the Syrian government. Um, this one is crazy. An NBC News team was kidnapped. They were held for several days. NBC came up with a ransom. And they told the big story how uh, President Assad militia had kidnapped them and you know, made their lives miserable and blah, blah, blah. NBC found out a few months later that in fact it was a terrorist rebel group who did it, pretending to be an Assad militia, and they never said a word. Two years later, the New York Times finally broke this story, and they were, then they were like, oh yeah, no, that did really happen. That's the quality of journalism we're getting about this conflict. Uh, one after another, all the names that you recognize. Okay, the big myth, of course, it has always been this so-called we chemical weapons thing. To be honest with you, I hardly spend any time on that. It's so stupid. It's literally like, okay, the United States has accused the Syrian government of shooting itself in the head again to make sure that they can never be victorious in this war. It's literally that juvenile. 
For example, the first chemical weapons attack in uh, the big one that everybody was talking about in Gouda, I had been watching every day Dr. Jafari, Dr. Jaffari, uh, the Syrian UN rep, working with the Syrian government, working with the United Nations, trying to get an unbiased team of investigators into Syria to investigate the use of chemical weapons there. Over a year. Now we're expected to believe that finally after a year, there's finally a team, they go into Damascus, they're literally unpacking their bags in Damascus. And President Assad just simply cannot control himself and lets a sarin attack fly against women and children in Damascus conveniently so that it could be investigated by this UN team. It's crazy. It's like a four-year-old's plan. We know that the terrorists have sarin. The track of sarin was traced down through Turkey to those groups by Seymour Hirsch in an article called uh, Who's Sarin? In fact, the CIA trained these so-called rebels in the use of chemical weapons in Jordan. I have an article from CNN. And in fact, the United States of America foreign policy just sent out an article not too long ago. CIA documents prove the United States of America helped Saddam Hussein launch some of the worst chemical weapons attacks in history against Iran. None of this is about chemical weapons, people. It has nothing to do with the price of tea in China, as my father used to say. In fact, most of the time, it appears that these are just really false flags. And people say, haven't you seen the video? Of course it happened. We saw the video. Have you ever seen a movie? Sometimes movies are documentaries, and sometimes they're fiction. And you can't usually sometimes tell the difference. Now, about this latest routine, about this Kanshikun attack, um, I was in Syria at the time, and then uh, after this news of this supposed new chemical weapons attack in Idlib went off, Donald Trump decided to launch 59 Tomahawk missiles against the Sharet Air Base near Homs. And I was 10 kilometers away. And I, this is my hotel room. Uh, the night before, we'd had a great old night. You know, we always hang around, and people are playing music and doing cards and stuff. I went to bed. I had my window wide open. And I slept like a baby. I didn't hear a thing. And I woke up in the morning. I always check the news when I'm there, of course, and found out my country had just launched a major missile attack against Syria. And so I went downstairs, and the, all the people there are like comforting me because I was so shaken. I was like, I couldn't believe that they would do this. It's really hard because it's sad that for every one of those Tomahawk missiles that cost $1.2 million, killed uh, the uncle of a dear friend of mine who was a colonel at that base. We could have built a school in Syria, and we would have had 
allies for generations. Uh, regarding the Khan Sheikhoun attack, what you have is Idlib is controlled basically by Al-Qaeda and a whole bunch of different terrorist groups, but Al-Qaeda is the strongest one. If you've heard of the White Helmets, they're Al-Qaeda's personal emergency management team. <laughs> that is what they are. They're not great civil defenders. They aren't the rescuers of children. They're the personal EMTs of terrorists. Um, this, they, they act like this hole in the ground has been this big chemical weapons bomb has gone off and you see them, you know, getting samples. The people getting samples are terrorists. They support terrorists. Then they ship them to Turkey. Turkey, which has been ISIS' greatest supporter since 2011, has let in almost 100,000 terrorists over its borders to go into Syria to fight for ISIS, says, oh yes, we certify that this is sarin. So we've gotten samples from terrorists that have gone through terrorist supporter hands, and no time was there ever an investigator on the ground there, ever. In fact, in the UN report, on the first page, it says, there's no way an investigator's going there. It's all terrorists. That's basically what they're saying here. And they said the terrorists filled the hole with concrete, so it's going to be hard to do an investigation anyway. But what do you hear on the news? UN says President S said responsible for a chemical weapons attack. It's crazy. Uh, this is the article I was mentioning by Seymour Hirsch, who's Saren. He's written some brilliant articles about Syria. Um, early on in 2003, um, you know, there was an article in the Washington Times that it was these so-called rebels doing these chemical weapons attacks. Um, I read an article in the India Times, I think it was, and they said, all around the world, chlorine gas attacks are a signature of ISIS. Except in Syria, when apparently they're the signature of the Syrian Arab Army. What I'm trying to say is it's a constant frame job. The Syrian army has done a lot of damage in Syria. Nobody's debating that. They're fighting 100,000, 200,000 terrorists from over 100 other countries that are trying to tear their country apart. It's brutal warfare. It's street-to-street -street fighting. But they're not going around killing women and children with freaking sarin gas. It's not happening. Um, we're going to hit a little bit more on Western media bias. Um, how's everybody doing? Do you want a five-minute break? No. Okay. Um, no, I'm good. Thanks. Uh, I'm on a roll, you know. Um, I met Father Daniel. Uh, he's lived in Syria through the war. He's just the greatest guy. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, he lives in a monastery called the Kara Monastery uh, up near Aleppo. And they were surrounded most of the war by al-Nusra and under constant threat of attacks and getting taken over. As you know, many priests have been killed and kidnapped in, during the Syrian war. Um, there's still two. There's an archbishop and a bishop whose whereabouts are unknown. 
Um, and he's just really clear. He did a great interview, and he said, uh, the idea that a popular uprising took place against President Assad is completely false. The Americans and their allies want to completely ruin the country. Do you not know that the media coverage on Syria is the biggest media lie of our time? And do you think that the Syrian people are stupid? You think these people were forced to cheer for Assad and Putin? The whole narrative about Syria has been false. This is my kind of in-your-face Clarissa Ward of CNN slide. Because there's dear Clarissa in East Aleppo, enjoying the, the rebel terrorist freedom and democracy. Every, pla every place you saw her, she's covered head to foot. She looks like she just came out of a coffin. She, you know, she's all like this. And you know, you'll notice there are no women holding those freedom signs back there. And she's trying to convince me. At one point, she says something like, the Syrian people consider al-Nusra their heroes. They don't. <laughs> now, here I am. I'm an Ugarit in Latakia. The lady on my left is a brilliant archaeologist. Uh, the lady on my right is my friend Gail from Australia. You know, we're getting this great tour of this archaeological site where one of the world's first languages was discovered. Here we are in a nightclub in Old Damascus having mojitos and watching people dance. And there I am walking the streets of Damascus. These little girls were following us, adorable little things. They kind of adopted us and, you know, getting a selfie with my new friend. I, I just... I just think of that more as freedom than that. But this is what Western media has been trying to sell you for seven years. Do you remember Omran, the little boy in the orange chair? All around the world on the front page, on every news media, television broadcast, everywhere, you saw the little boy with the bruised up face. It was a hard image to look at. And he was sold as a face of this, the white helmets and these freedom and democracy rebels in Aleppo and how people there are just getting killed by the Syrians and the Russians. Well, it turns out his father was a Syrian soldier before the war. He's always been loyal to the government. These guys. Do you remember the kid that got taken out of hospital with IV in his arm and his head was cut off? He is with them. The photographer who took the famous picture of Oman was also yucking it up with those terrorists who cut the head off the other boy. Same photographer. His dad, you know, they finally escaped East Aleppo. He's living in Aleppo now, and he's just a happy kid. I think they did lose one of their sons in the war. There's, there are no happy endings like they say in Syria. You know, everybody has a tragic story to tell. But this is a lie. When they found out that this wasn't true, when they saw the pictures of little Omran safe in his father's arm in West Aleppo, 
how many front pages did that story appear on? Zero. Zero. One of the first atrocities that was, that actually created all of this pressure, Assad must go, we have to support these rebels, we have to do this, we have to do that, was this thing that's been called the Hula Massacre. This picture was put again on every broadcast, on every newspaper. It's fake, it's from Iraq. One, I think one newspaper wrote a retraction finally that said that that picture isn't from Hula. And then later on it came out that it was rebel terrorists that had committed the massacre where government supporters for the most part were hacked to death and whole families were hacked to death in their sleep. But you wouldn't know that from Western news media. They were too busy reporting it the other way around. Now we're going to get into the nitty gritty. How this all started. Did it, was it a spontaneous uprising, peaceful protests that turned violent and became more of a terrorist revolution kind of by chance? And the answer is no. The war did not start in 2011. It started in 2001, this particular war. I'll show you how. Uh, the United States of America, like I said, I'm a patriotic American. I believe in the ideals of our country. I do not recall in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, or the Declaration of Independence, where it said we're supposed to go bomb other countries at will, create military bases against the will of the people and the, go and the sovereign governments there. I don't, I may be wrong, but I'm not remembering that in our documents. 100% illegally. There's been no UN mandate and there's been no declaration of war. There have been many fronts in this war. We've had covert operations by the CIA and State Department including our so-called ambassador who was sent there to foment revolution. We've had military operations. We've had economic pressures via sanctions. And I'm here to tell you, sanctions are touted as some kind of peaceful method of applying pressure against a government we don't like. What sanctions do is they strangle the population of a country to the point where the people are so miserable they might rise up and do our regime change for us. To me, it's a torture, a slow torture of an entire population. And then propaganda versus media, nonstop. Um, in 2001, um, there was a, right after 9-11, there was a plan pen, passed around the Pentagon called the Seven Countries in Five Years Plan. This was revealed by no one other than General Wesley Clark. He was the former Supreme Commander of Allied Forces NATO in Europe. So he's one of the highest guys you can get at the Pentagon. And finally in 2007 he was so disgusted by how our foreign policy had turned out after 2000, uh, after 9-11 that he came public. He ma made this public. And uh, the neocons 
I'm, I'm truly, I'm, poli I'm political issues-wise. I don't care what party anybody's with, whatever. Um, but the neocons really changed our, our military and our foreign policy in a disastrous, catastrophic way. And so they said that we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq, then Syria, Libya, Lebanon, Sudan, Somalia, and ending with Iran. Keep in mind that the first time we had tried to engineer a regime change coup in Syria was 1949. And we tried it again in the 80s. So this is something we're very used to trying there, and indeed around the world. Uh, George Bush was in what we call, you know, full, you're either with us or against us mode. So, in other words, if you won't jump on board with our foreign policy after 9-11, we're going to consider you our enemy. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu appeared before Congress. He's sitting there. And he says, I give you my personal guarantee that if you take out Saddam, it will have enormous positive reverberations on the region. That was in 2002. When do we get to hold him accountable for the fact that it's been an utter disaster? At the same time, Ariel Sharon was saying the US should go after Libya and Syria as well and take out their weapons of mass destruction. You remember the speeches of the neocons, how we would be in Iraq for weeks, maybe months at the most. It's 14 years later. And then, of course, Colin Powell, with his infamous WMDs in Iraq speech at the UN, one of the men, one of the main writers of that speech is a man by the name of Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. And he was special forces, and then I think he was Ronald Reagan's national security advisor. Then he became Colin Powell's um, chief of staff while he was secretary of state. And Lawrence Wilkerson was uh, responsible in large part for writing that speech. After several years of the Iraq War when Colonel Wilkerson had seen the sadistic torture that was employed at the Abu Ghraib prison system in Iraq that he realized had been okayed at the highest levels of our government. He said he had a wake-up call. And he realizes that how, and he is very open and honest about how they cherry-picked through intelligence to present a certain picture that they wanted us to buy. And it's the same playbook that you're, you saw about Libya and Syria. Uh, Colin Powell went to Damascus in 2004, um, uh, or 2003, I can't remember, um, and basically laid out a series of dictates that if, basically, if he was going to stay in, if the U.S. would allow him to stay in office, he would have to kind of take this, these dictates or this advice from us um, to end all support and affiliation with Hezbollah, 
um, any Palestinian resistance group, etc. And basically, President Assad said, I accept advice, but not dictates. So next thing you know, on our news, now Syria is part of the axis of evil, kind of overnight, you know. He had actually given us what the Pentagon called invaluable intelligence about al-Qaeda operatives after 9-11. Now, Christiane Amanpour goes to Damascus, and she's interviewing President Assad. And she, in 2005, she says it straight out. The rhetoric of regime change is headed to you. We're already picking out new leaders for Syria. How do you feel about this? And he's like, well, to tell you the truth, I'm not that worried. Because I'm Syrian. I was made by Syrians, not by the United States. And every, you know, I'm not here to promote President Bashar al-Assad. I personally have come to admire the man. And that took a while because I'm programmed, you know, I was programmed to really be suspicious and not. But that, I'm not trying to convince you of that. What I'm saying is all that man has said since the beginning is it's a Syrian decision to be decided in the ballot box, not by the U.S., not by Israel, not by U.K., France, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, or Turkey. That's all he's saying. In 2006, a cable uh, recently was released uh, by WikiLeaks that was written in 2006 in the American Embassy in Damascus. And it basically lays out our plan for undermining the government of Syria and destabilizing the country while promoting secular hatred and distrust. Now keep in mind, in Syria, one of the reasons I love to go there is because you can go to a mosque, you can go to a church, you can go to a bar, you can go to a museum. It's all, and most likely, your Muslim buddy and your Christian buddy are going to go with you to all those places. It's unbelievable. It's just, it, it's a unique culture there. It's a unique place. It's beautiful. We deliberately set about to, to take that apart that unity, that tolerance, that mutual respect between religious groups. That started in 2006. In 2007, George Bush and Elliot Abrams met with the leader of the Syrian expat Muslim Brotherhood in the White House to figure out how, hey, how can we together destabilize Syria, undermine the Syrian government? Because everything we've been trying says it's whether all attempts by the U.S. to cripple in recent years. So all of our efforts have been kind of failing. So now we're turning to the Muslim Brotherhood. Hey guys, what can you do for us? This is uh, Roland Dumas, a uh, former French foreign minister. He said, I was in England two years before the violence started in Syria. I met with top British officials who confessed to me they were preparing something in Syria. There's a bad word in here, sorry, but um, basically there's like this playbook, you know. The CIA wrote it in 1987 about kind of how we would go about destabilizing the Syrian government, and we're kind of using that playbook now. But it just kind of has this 
process to go through to make it look to the American people like we're doing something good over there. The violence began in 2011. Now, since then, at least 400,000 people have died. A lot of the you know, infrastructure is damaged. Um, one of the hardest things to deal with is when you're talking to somebody there, and what's really died are their dreams. And they said, Jan, before the war, I had hopes and dreams for my future. Now we're just hoping we survive the next day. That's it. And it, it, it's just kind of this wearing down of these people. And yet, one of the reasons I go back again and again is because, in spite of all that, they're still insisting that I come to their homes to spend the night or stay for dinner. They're telling me jokes. They're cheering me up. I know people that were kidnapped and tortured by terrorists. Their bodies are broken. They're in pain all the time. I know several people like that. And they're my friends. And we joke together. And we have fun together. And it's just, I wish I could take you all there to show you what these people are like. OK, so now we're in the war. We're kind of going through the timeline. In 2012, 2013, in 2012, Mike Flynn was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. He wrote a report to the Obama administration, and he said, all these so-called rebel groups are basically Al-Qaeda, this new group that we're just hearing about, ISIS, and the Muslim Brotherhood. And he said, at that time, the Obama administration made a willful decision to treat those groups as assets in our regime change war against President Bashar al-Assad of Syria. And this is, this is tough. The West has put all kinds of sanctions and embargoes on Syria. Syria is not allowed to export its oil to Western countries. But in 2013, as first al-Nusra and then ISIS took over the rich oil fields in the Deir Ezzor region, the European Union dropped its embargo for oil coming from rebels. And this is what happened was the ISIS in Deir Ezzor was able to transport vast amounts of oil via these huge truck convoys up through Turkey. And Europe and other places were buying it. It was real cheap. I've been to Deir Ezzor. Oil there is like two meters below the ground. There's oil fields everywhere. And it was. The income was like millions of dollars, I think like a million dollars a day sometimes. Um, later on, um, in one of the, I think it was the Geneva Two Talks, I can't remember, John Kerry was meeting with members of the so-called opposition. And he was recorded on audio. And he said these words. The reason Russia came in is because ISIS was getting stronger, was threatening the possibility of going to Damascus and so forth. And that's exactly they were trying to head to Damascus to take over the whole government. And that's why Russia came in. We know this was growing. We were watching. 
we saw that Dash, which is ISIS, was growing in strength. And we thought Assad was threatened. But instead of negotiating that dog, he called in Putin. And it wasn't a few months after Russia came in that that, uh, that income stream, they blasted a lot of those ISIS oil convoys to you know where. Now, keep in mind the U.S. coalition had already been in there. And they were saying we we're fighting ISIS. They never once attacked the ISIS oil convoys. Russia came in, boom. <laughs> so this might be confusing. Why on planet Earth is the United States of America helping Al-Qaeda and ISIS and legions of other terrorist groups pull Syria apart, destabilize it, create a caliphate in the, middle, in the heart of the Middle East. Why in the universe would we be involved in such a thing? Am I making sense? Is this tracking with everybody? Is that okay? Um, in order to understand the why, you have to understand the who is involved. There was a group of countries that was determined to undermine Syria the US, UK, France, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, and also the Muslim Brotherhood Organization. They each have their own agendas, but they've all been working together to rip Syria apart. Um, US, UK, and France, and uh, you know, each one of these could be a talk on its own, but there really is just a lot of arrogance in the people in power. They still have this kind of colonial imperial mentality, this white man's burden, if you will, of oh, we've got to go help Syria. They've got a t dictator there. You know, there's st there still are people that think that. Um, but what that mentality has evolved into is something we call globalism now. I, w I have to share this story. Okay, I was. Um, a friend of mine, dear man, he's an independent fil filmmaker there. And he's a brilliant guy, he's a musician, an artist, you name it. And before the war, he was leading groups of archaeologists in some of the archaeological digs in northwest, eastern Syria. And one of the groups he led in was a group of Germans. And there are no hotels where they were, so he put them up in the house of this little Syrian lady. And she's doing the Syrian thing on them, you know, cooking all day and making these huge spreads of delicious foods and, you know, kind of sit, have some mate, have some tea, coffee, relax. And the Germans are like, yeah, no, you don't understand. We've got to go. We've got to do this. We've got to work, you know. And um, my friend ended up apologizing to the little Syrian lady on their behalf, saying they don't mean to hurt you. You know, they're just Germans, you know, they're focused on what they're doing. And um, she goes, that's okay. They come from a very young country. Syria is 6,000 years old. And, you know, the United States of America is a toddler wearing diapers carrying a loaded pistol. It doesn't, matter, it doesn't mean everything's perfect there. They've got a lot of problems there. So do we, you know? But who are we to go tell them who their leaders should be, what their future should be, what their culture should be. Um, 
we've still got a lot of old Cold War warriors. Um, you know, there's 700 to 1,000 U.S. military bases around the world. The sun never sets on our military, by the way. Um, people want control of the natural resources, of course. Some of this has to do with gas pipeline deals. I'll go into that in a sec. Uh, we want to lock China and Russia out of the region. We're pandering to Israel's ambitions and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. And of course, the arms makers. Uh, I think it was the CEO of Lockheed Martin was talking to a group of Dutch bankers or German bankers. And she said, don't worry, even if peace comes to Syria, we'll have, we'll, you know, there'll be lots more wars in the Middle East, you know, meaning your profits aren't going to be hurt. Uh oh. <laughs> Um, why does Israel want Syria uh, to fall apart? Well, obviously to weaken the resistance against their uh, policies and actions. Uh, punishment for the 2006 war when Hezbollah, with the help of Syria, humiliated the Israeli uh, army after they invaded Lebanon. Um, they want to take full control of the Golan Heights. No country on earth recognizes their right to that land, as a matter of fact. Not even America, who kind of okays everything they do. Um, but they want to finish taking that over. It has uh, huge water and oil resources. Um, there's something called the Oded Yanan Plan. It works with something called the Greater Israel Plan, where there are a lot of the Zionists um, want to take over much of the Middle East. And in order to do that, in the 80s, they came up with this kind of strategy of, of splitting the Middle East, like Syria and Iraq especially, up into small sectarian-based states. So there would be an Alawite land, a Sunni land, a Shiite land. I think all the Christians are supposed to go to Lebanon. You know, there's a Kurdistan, there's a Yazidi land, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and this is the policy that our foreign policy has adopted, really, and what you're seeing play out, the attempted uh, playing out in Syria. And Qatar is in there. Qatar has been supporting the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, the Syrian war um, because part of it is this gas field here in the Persian Gulf contains enough natural gas, according to industry sources, to meet Europe's demands for the next 100 years. So we're talking I don't know how many dollars. It's co-owned. It's jointly owned by Iran and Qatar. And they both proposed uh, gas pipeline deals that would go through Syria. And President Bashar al-Assad took the one, the deal from Iran. And gee, golly, next thing you know, Qatar is really concerned about freedom and democracy in Syria. Yeah. I think this is a big factor. And then you have Turkey. Um, uh, Erdogan. Uh, by all character measurements, appears to want to be a new Ottoman-like sultan to start a new Ottoman empire. I think he also is crazy. He's, um, 
He's been, like I said, ISIS, uh, one of their biggest uh, supporters because he was letting all those fighters go across his border for years. Um, he denies that he's part of the Muslim Brotherhood. He was part of it before, but he's always flashing their little hand signal everywhere. And he seems to be kind of the de facto head, if you will, of, of the Brotherhood, uh, which is like a mafia, really, in my opinion. Um, so you've got him in there. So you've got all these hands in the pot in Syria, which is why it's so complicated and confusing. But there's been great things happening. And this is how I want to kind of leave us today in a way, is, is these, this idea of hope. Because one of the reasons I like going back is because every time things get better. Homs was liberated in 2014. And the people came streaming back. I don't know if you have saw any of those pictures. And Homs is rebuilding. And Homs is alive. Half of it's destroyed, it's true. But if I, if I could tell you the stories from home, she would not believe them, what happened there. But it's alive still. It's survived. Aleppo was liberated in December. Actually, I should say 2016 it was liberated. The very first thing they did was hold a gigantic Christmas party in the heart of the city. How much did you see that on Western news media? Maybe a little bit. They, some of them reported on that a little bit. So that was a great day. That was a huge battle. Amazing. And I just got to go see Dear Azor and Al-Mayadeen liberated. This picture here is Al-Mayadeen, which was the economic and weapons capital of ISIS. Two weeks before I was standing there, it was still under control of ISIS. It had just been liberated. Everywhere, all these posters. Call this number to join ISIS. Here's how a woman, woman should look. Here's how a man should look. And he's carrying a big gun and a Quran. Um, they had weapons-making facilities. We saw several making bombs. Ah, oh, I should have put the picture in. I went, the Syrian army captured their weapons arsenal. And they laid it out for us. And it's a football field of howitzer tanks. RPGs, uh, weaponized drones, rifles. It just went on and on, machine guns that they captured at El Mayadeen from ISIS. And so here, my two Syrian lady friends were under the little billboard that says, this is how women should dress. And we're all there to tell you we disagree. <laughs> A woman can dress like that if she wants. I have no problem with that, really. but. Not the women of Syria, you know, most of them don't want to look like that. So just briefly about Syria as a country. It's a secular country, um, guaranteed freedom of religion and rights for all religions. Uh, women are empowered there. Women are business owners, factory owners, jet pilots, uh, leaders in government, um, artists, musicians, doctors, scientists, you name it. Uh, they dress like, I just dress like this when I'm there. And sometimes this is overdressed. I mean, the girls wear mini skirts sometimes there. Um, before the war, it was the fifth safest country in the world. 
according to Gallup polls. Um, uh, one of the dominant themes of the Assad governments has been stability. Syria had suffered through one coup after another until the assets came. And so I think that's a big reason why maybe there was a lot of, there was a little heavy-handed police and, you know, things like that. Um, but there was a growing prosperity and openness. One thing to remember is Bashar al-Assad came to power in 2001. The violence started in 2011. Why were there no refugees from Syria for 10 years? if he's such a brutal, evil tyrant. And free, people were free to leave. It's not a, an Iron Curtain country. It was receiving millions of tourists every single year. It was one of the fastest growing tourist nation, destinations in the world. Um, had a constitution since the 20s, was one of the founding nation states of the United Nations. It's a secular constitution that was popularly ratified in 2012, a popularly elected parliament. Of course, there was a presidential election in 2014, which our government said was a joke. But what nobody failed, nobody said was the Syrian refugees in Lebanon, there are millions of them, one and a half million, two million. I know the guys at the Syrian embassy in Beirut, they were shocked. The line was two kilometers long to come vote. They had to reopen the polls the next day. No secret police, no Syrian army there. But the people flocked. It was hot that day. They were having to wash them down with water and stuff. One woman uh, Senator Black talked to, she showed him her thumb where she had cut it so she could vote with her blood. They didn't have to turn out the vote in Lebanon. So I think that's a pretty good indication that the guy is pretty popular in Syria. And what I, one thing I really appreciate is the emphasis on education there. Uh, literally, they were spending like 16 to 17% of GDP on improving education. It was 100% literacy rate before the war. These are just some random pictures. These aren't mine. Um, pictures you might not have seen of this leader of Syria with Christian leaders, with uh, displaced people, with the army, just walking around the streets. He and his wife still driving themselves around Damascus in their own cars. These are massive pro-government rallies at the early part of the war when it was still, you know, uh, as time went on it was just too dangerous. But literally all around the country were these huge rallies in support of Syria's sovereignty and Syria as a nation. Uh, women in Syria, like I said, jet pilots, uh, vice president is a woman. Uh, this girl is given blood, and that's, uh, this is Mrs. Uh, Assad there in a village. Um, this is all of the main religious leaders of Syria meeting, gathering together. I think they prayed together. Uh, the archbishop given blood for the war effort. Uh, this is my friend. I can honestly say this man is one of my heroes, and I met him several times, the Grand Mufti, and his good buddy, Bishop Khoury. Um, and I just love the expression on the faces there. That's Syria to me. That's me meeting with the Mufti. I think this is the bottom line. Archbishop Jacques Hindu 
said um, he's Syrian Catholic, Western propaganda keeps talking about moderate rebels who do not exist. The Syrian people will decide if and when Assad has to go away, not ISIS or the West. And I think that sums up the whole thing right there. Um, basically, this is what I just went through. It's all lies, all the stuff you've been hearing in the news. This is one of my favorite pictures, again, from this last trip. This is at the Citadel in Aleppo. We'd just gotten out of the van. I saw these ladies over there with their uh, argili, their shisha, smoking the water pipe. They were making coffee. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And they said, come here, come here. So next thing I know, I'm smoking the shisha. It's just tobacco, by the way. Um, and drinking the coffee. And we're hanging out, laughing, telling stories. This is what I go to Syria for, these random personal encounters with the people over there. I love that. That's it. Shukran.